Please turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We conclude our series here in the temptations of Jesus. The temptations of Jesus. For the last three weeks, we've been going through this mini-series in Luke chapter 4. And last week, we learned that in the second temptation, Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut to glory. And so, of course, Satan wanted Jesus to bypass the cross and worship the devil. And Satan would have done anything to prevent Jesus from following his path to the cross. And Satan tempts us in similar ways that we've, we've explored, similar ways so that we, as Christians, will not take up our cross and follow the path that Jesus has providentially set for us, but instead worship the world and the flesh and the idols. So today we conclude as we look at the third and the last of these temptations that the devil used to try and get Jesus to fail with the mission that he had set out to do. And we will seek to understand what it was that Satan was seeking to accomplish and why. We will also make an effort to determine why leaping from the temple would have been a sin. And of course, the results of that had our Lord done so. We will also explore the ways in which Jumping from this pinnacle of the temple may be performed by people today, by us today. So if you'll turn with me to Luke 4, we will read um, from verse 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Notice there, now Satan is using scripture. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray together before we go into the Word. Father, we thankful, Lord, that you are sovereign. Thankful today that we can come to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are grateful today, Lord, that you are in charge of everything in this world, including the devil. And we pray, Father, as we come to you, that you would quieten our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would be sitting at your feet, willing to hear your word and willing to learn, so that we can be equipped, so that we'll be able to respond in a biblical way that would please you with all the different ways the devil tempts us throughout the week. Pray, Lord, that you would teach us and help us, Lord, to be armed and ready for these temptations, because we know, Lord, they will be thrown at us in one way or another. But we ask, Lord, that we would submit to you today, 
And we would trust you, Lord, practically that we would just not be the, the hearers of your word, but we would be the doers as well. So we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified and magnified in all that we, we do and say this morning. For the sake of your great name we pray. Amen. So those of you who come from a, a Methodist background will recognize the name John Wesley. He was an English cleric, a theologian, and an evangelist who was a leader of a revival movement within the Church of England, which eventually gave birth to the Methodist Church. While John Wesley was a child, he asked his godly mother, the saintly Susanna Wesley, how do you define sin? And her reply was theologically very deep and profound, and this is what she said. She said, if anything weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes away your relish for spiritual things, relish means appetite, in short, if anything increases the power or authority of the flesh over the spirit, that for you becomes sin, however good it is in itself. It's a great definition. Last week we saw that the main purpose of our lives is to worship God. We are to glorify God and, and we are to enjoy Him forever. And God wants our lives to be lived so that we reflect the, the beauty and the, the glory of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 verse 29 tells us, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of the Son. So Satan, of course, doesn't want us to do that. Satan wants to take away our relish or our appetite for spiritual things. Satan wants our lives to reflect anything else but the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And he tempts us. He tempts us with sin. Satan wants to weaken our reasoning and he wants to impair our thinking and our conscience and obscure our sense of God by falling into all different types of sin's temptations. Anything that has the power to lure us away or distract us from God's goal for our lives is a temptation. But I wonder if your child was to ask you to give a definition for temptation. I wonder how you would answer that. But here's a great definition I read this week. Temptation is the persuasive attraction that would cause us to center our lives on something other than God and God's purpose for our lives. If we surrender to that attraction or that temptation, the result is sin and ruin. Very similar to Susanna Wesley's definition of sin. Sin and temptation very closely linked together. The temptation of Jesus for the purpose of distracting him from his ultimate goal and purpose in life. We see that clearly as Satan tried his temptations these last three weeks. And that goal, that destiny, Jesus knew was to go to the cross. He knew his goal was to be perfect as he approached the cross. He had to be sinless. He had to be the atoning sacrifice for mankind. And he was not able to fall into sin. 
Of course, Satan's desire and his intent in the wilderness was to defeat God's purpose so that Jesus would be, um, so that he would fail in his mission, so that he would be disqualified in providing himself as a sinless lamb of God. The very name Satan means the adversary, the one who opposes. So Satan was opposing everything that Jesus was doing or about to do. And just as God had a specific goal and purpose for Jesus, He has a specific goal and purpose for His church. And of course, for every individual Christian. And Satan's intention is to cause the church and the individual Christians, of course, to deviate from that plan and purpose. And of course, try and thwart the the design and the will of God. So we see this third temptation this morning, and that is found in verse 9. And the title, my first point is simply the setting. We see the setting, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. I hope you noticed on each of the three temptations, there is a different setting that takes place. The first temptation occurred in the wilderness. The second temptation was proposed from the top of a, of a very high mountain. And the third temptation will take place in the holy city, Jerusalem, on a very high point of the temple. Our Lord had no doubt been in Jerusalem on a number of occasions. We've already seen His parents bring Him to Jerusalem, to the temple, as been recorded for us in, in Luke And we know from Luke chapter 2 that they did this every single year. So Jesus is very familiar with Jerusalem. I'm sure he has a a strong attachment to this city. And to this point in the life of our Lord, Luke has recorded that incident for us when Jesus was 12 years old, how he loved to be in the temple. But even at this early age, our Lord recognized that the temple was his father's house. There was a special attachment. And I think Satan used that, or he tried to use that for his advantage. I think Satan must have led our Lord to Jerusalem for a particular purpose. And I believe it is safe to assume that he led the Lord to Jerusalem and to the temple, thinking that this would make his final temptation more appealing. And we see now his proposal in the second half of verse 9, the proposition So he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down here. Verse 10, For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So the challenge is clear. Satan here, in a way, he's daring our Lord to jump from the pinnacle of the temple. And since our Lord has in the previous two temptations quoted Scripture to to Satan's temptations, Satan here, this time, uses Scripture himself, supposing that this will improve his position. But the problem is Satan, again, is twisting the Scriptures. The devil is misrepresenting Psalm 91, which we read this morning. He did not quote all of Psalm 91. He changed the scripture for his own purpose. 
In fact, the psalm is not a promise of protection for Israel's Messiah. In fact, it is the opposite. It is a promise of protection from God's wrath for all who take refuge in God, for God's children. So what exactly is the proposition being offered to Jesus by Satan? What exactly is he trying to persuade Jesus to do? And the answer to this question is not as obvious as it, as it may seem. And I think and I believe there are several possible reasons. Well, firstly, Satan, we know, was seeking to disqualify Jesus as the Messiah. If, if Jesus had put God to the test, he would have been guilty of sinning, which, of course, would have disqualified him. Secondly, I think Satan was seeking to get our Lord to doubt the, the goodness and power of God. And we've seen that already in the first two offerings, the first two temptations. And the only reason for putting God to the test, we know, is doubt and, and unbelief, isn't it? For Jesus to have jumped would have meant that he doubted God and thought it necessary to test God's love, necessary to test God's care. And our Lord's responses to the first two temptations indicate a firm, he had a firm faith in God, a faith which was willing to wait for God, because he knew God would bring about his will. He wanted God's will done, not his own will done, rather than to independently bring it about by his, his own actions. Satan tried to turn passive faith into a presumptive faith, and we're going to look at that more in a moment. And acting presumptuously would be sin. But thirdly, Satan was seeking to kill the Messiah. Now remember, Jesus is a man, and he cannot survive such a fall. He didn't survive the cross. Even though he was God, he died on the cross. We know that. But once he had lost his blood, he was dead. And what Satan wants to do here, of course, his wicked purposes, is to kill Jesus. He wants him dead. If Christ dies here, then he can no longer give his life as a ransom. And of course, Satan will be victorious. His death had to be on the cross, not by jumping off a cliff. So Satan has been trying to kill Jesus for a long time. In Genesis chapter 3, God had told Satan that the Messiah, the seed of the, the woman, would crush the head of Satan. We see that in chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And Satan, on the other hand, would bruise the heel of, of the seed because the Messiah would be crushing his heel on his, on his head. But from this point on, Satan would try to prevent the seed from being born. We see that even in the Old Testament. Or to kill the, the seed once he was born. We see Satan's opposition against Israel through whom the seed would eventually come, right through the Old Testament. But after the birth of Messiah, we see Satan behind the attempt of, of Herod to kill all the children. We see that in Matthew chapter 2. And Satan, was, Satan saw the killing of Messiah as the solution to the threat of the Messiah and His kingdom. In any one of these ways... I believe that Satan wanted either to disqualify 
or disarm Jesus. That was his plan all along. So that, of course, he would not be able to fulfill his mission, which was to destroy the evil one and to establish his kingdom. But look how Jesus responds, and this is very important. We see in verse 12, Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Another version says, you shall not force a test on the Lord your God. So the words which Jesus quotes here to Satan are are very specific. In fact, they're found in the Bible. They are found in Deuteronomy chapter 16 with with an extra descriptive statement. It says in Deuteronomy 16, Six, it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So what happened at Massa? Well, in order to understand what it means to put God to the, to the test, we must learn what happened at Massa. An account of this is found in the book of Exodus. If you would turn there with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 17 I'd encourage you to go read that whole story when you get home. All the details are there. But there's two main verses that I want to read from this account. In Exodus 17, verse 2, it says, Therefore they quarreled with Moses. The Israelites quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? So there's the phrase, tempt the Lord. But then in verse 7, move down to verse 7, and he called the name of the place Massa. This is Moses, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So notice that phrase is there twice there in Exodus chapter 17. Let me give you a bit of context what's going on here. The Israelites put God to the test because they felt God was failing to meet their needs and to fulfill His promise. So remember, He had brought them out of Egypt. And now He had provided everything that they needed. And during the day, the the children of Israel were being led by the pillar of cloud. And by night, they were being led by the, the pillar of fire. But as they were going through the wilderness, they began to question whether God was with them or not. And of course, the Israelites protested. They protested against Moses and they protested against God. And they were basically saying, oh, the good old days were so much better when we were back in Egypt. No, they weren't. They were slaves. They were slaves. So they're contrasting what there was before with their present circumstance. And they thought life was better back in Egypt, and they protested. They thought it was so good, in fact, that they even wanted to go back. They threatened to go back. But notice something important, very important here, folks. The Israelites put God to the test when they realized that God's purposes and leading brought them into difficult and harsh conditions. They didn't like the conditions. That's all it was. They wanted the ease and the comfort that they used to have in Egypt. They forgot that they were slaves. They forgot that they were, they were no, 
they were not free people in Egypt. They forgot how hard they were worked, almost to the point of death, by the Egyptians. They just liked the conditions. And they're putting God to the test. And this is called their tempting God. And the Israelites thought that they knew better than God. They assumed that what they wanted was, was good for them. They assumed that their judgment and their, their wisdom was superior to God's wisdom and God's knowledge. Before moving on, let me explain what the words presumption or presumptuous mean, because that is the sin here, okay? This is the sin of the Israelites. This is what it means to, to tempt God, to be presumptuous. Well, those words are closely related to the words assume or assumption. So both have the meaning of taking something for granted without sufficient evidence or facts. So these words suggest an attitude of, of arrogance, which we see here in the Israelites. This week I was talking to Varun, and Varun is from a Hindu background who used to live in India, in, in Cochin. And he used to live next door to neighbors who professed to be Christian. And he said that his impression of these people was one of presumption. Now remember, he's an unbeliever. And these people, they used to shout and they used to make horrible noises in the name of Jesus. And these were professing Christians. And he said it used to terrify him at times with the, with the shouting that, that used to go on. And he soon discovered that these professing Christians were, were attempting to, to heal people with, with the shouting as well. By shouting the name of Jesus as some type of chant or some type of mantra. And these neighbors also had a daughter who had cancer. And they refused to take her to the doctor for treatment. And instead insisted that God would hear their prayers and, and heal their daughter without professional medical treatment. So even as an unbelieving Hindu, Varun could see that this sinful attitude was one of presumption. There's another example I read about this week of another false prophet by the name of Benny Hinn. And he was telling people that Jesus told him that people will be raised from the dead through the, the Trinity broadcast network there in the USA. And they'll be raised from the dead through TBN. And he said several times, Jesus has told me this. And he said, now what I want you to do, people, is when somebody dies in your family, bring them to the television in front of the TV and leave them there for 24 hours. And he said, you, you put their arms on the TV. And there was a report of a, of a father whose little baby died, and so he packed the baby in, in ice, and he, he carted it across the country to the Benny Hinn meeting. What are you doing here, folks, with people's emotions? When the baby doesn't get raised from the dead and when all those bodies hanging over the TV don't rise, of course, who gets blamed? This is blasphemy, folks. And that kind of thing has absolutely nothing to do with biblical Christianity. This is nothing more than sinful presumption. This is sinful arrogance that Luke is warning us about here in this temptation. 
Well, hold on, pastor, you may say. Hold on a minute. You know, doesn't Jesus himself say in Matthew 7 that, that God is a good father and that he loves to give good gifts to his children if we're just ready to ask? Doesn't, doesn't the Bible say that? Yes, the Bible does say that. And it is true that God has promised to give us good things. But don't twist the scriptures here, folks. The problem is our definition of good things and God's definition of good things. Often, two different things. The problem happens when we, when we look to such passages to prove our point of view when we don't understand the context. We look to these passages to prove that, that God must give us what we want. And what we are doing is we are assuming that we know better than God. We are assuming that what we want is always good for us. And we know what's good for us more than what God does. We are assuming that our judgment, our knowledge, our clarity, our foresight and wisdom is superior to God's. Be careful, folks. That is presumption. That is presumption. Most often, folks, not giving us what we want is one of God's greatest blessings. And we don't understand that often. We don't understand it all the times until time has passed and we can look back and we can say, wow, Lord, thank you for not doing that. Thank you for not giving us what we want. But only after some time has passed. But what we want and what God wants are often very two different things. Only a sinful attitude of presumption ignores God's revealed will for us in the Scriptures. The sinful attitude ignores God's Scriptures and His will in exchange for fleshly desires which, which we want that would satisfy our souls and satisfy our flesh. Turn with me to James chapter 4. James, the apostle, talks about this. James chapter 4. He says in verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. But it doesn't stop there. Don't, don't stop the Scriptures. Look at the context. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. To spend it on your passions. We need to be careful, folks. Our hearts are desperately wicked. We need to trust God's will above our will. We need to trust that He knows best. Because our hearts are wicked. You know, faith is believing in the promises of God and waiting for God to fulfill them in His time, not our time. Faith is enduring suffering. We talked about that last week. Faith is enduring persecution and adversity in the present while looking forward to the promises of God. Putting God to the test 
is demanding that God bless us now and that he remove all sin and suffering from us now. It's the sin of assumption. When we put God to the test, we are not, we are doubting not only the promises of God, but his presence among us. Remember those words of the Israelites, which are recorded as putting God to the test. Remember in Exodus 17, is the Lord amongst us or not? Doubting God's love. Our Lord has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He promised to be with us always to the end of this age. And you know, we put God to the test when we, when we think and believe that God's presence is only evidence in times of prosperity, in times of blessing. That's a heresy, folks. That's what the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel teach. And it is a heresy. This is not taught in the Bible. Many of the people of the Bible found God's presence even more precious and more real in times of distress, in times of persecution, in times of suffering. The psalmist speaks these wonderful words in times of distress. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." Is that your prayer, folks, during a time of suffering, during time of oppression? I believe that presumption or, or putting God to the test is a perversion of the truth. You know, it is faith taken for granted. There is the thin line of distinction between trusting God and testing God, a thin line. Now, testing God may very well be founded on the premise that, that God is able to do what He has promised, but it is sinful in resisting God's timetable for fulfilling His promise. Trusting God involves receiving what God has presently provided, but waiting for what is yet future, what is yet to come. And testing God is trying to force God to provide now what He has promised later. Putting God to the test is sin. And how many of us have fallen into this trap? We may not jump from temples, but we test God's love in other subtle ways, isn't it? When we don't pray as often as we should, we're saying to God, well, God, you're going to take care of me anyway. I'm your child. It's your job to look after me. I don't need to pray. Let's see. You take care of me. Sin of presumption. When we don't put our Bible study as a priority, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven anyway. I know enough, Lord. Sin of presumption. 
or when we don't put our, our worship of God as a priority, or when we don't put our coming to church as a priority, and we still expect God to, to keep us and, and bless us and to provide for us. Now, how, here's the line, the Lord says, and, and we say, well, how close can I get to the line? How close can I get to the line? And then we're surprised when, when there's problems in our marriage. And then we're surprised when there's trouble at, at school or when someone who claims to be a Christian ends up pregnant. What do we do? We blame God. It's God's fault. But this happens, folks, when we put God to the test. We do it when we dive into a, a path of our own choosing and then we cry out to God to bail us out because it's not working. The sin of presumption. The sin of presumption. I shared with the, the home group last night. I remember in India, a family coming to me after church, a mother and father, and saying, Pastor, please would you pray for our son? He's writing his, his board exams, his 12th exams this week. So I said, of course I will. Please let him, let him come here. Let me pray with him. Oh no, pastor, he's not here. Where is he? Oh, he's, he's studying. He's studying for the exams. Sin of presumption. Expect God to, to bless you, but you're not willing to honor him on the Lord's day. You need to be careful of this, folks. But lastly, don't miss the truth. We see given there in verse 13. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This verse says that when the temptation was ended, the devil departed from him. So the Greek is much more blunt. It says he stood off. The devil stood off. This battle was over, but the devil had not given up. There was still more to come. Margaret Thatcher, the first woman prime minister of England, she once said, you may have to fight a battle more than once to win it. And this verse reveals that the devil, of course, was willing to fight as many battles as he needed to get, Satan, to get Jesus to sin. And he does that even to get Christians to sin so that they will not honor God, they will not honor Jesus. The devil will always be lurking in the shadows, watching and waiting for the next vulnerable moment. I like the way John MacArthur said it. He said, when you are weak, expect a major assault. When you resist, be ready for a different approach. And when he leaves, count on another attack. Be on guard, folks. Be on guard. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. Don't fall into these temptations by assuming God's grace and assuming His blessings. How do we overcome this temptation? Well, this is where I want to conclude the series. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul, the apostle, says here in this passage in verse 13, that no temptation 
has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So our Lord did not use, remember, His divine power to defeat Satan. He could have. He could have called down the angels at any time, but He didn't. How did He overcome temptation? He used the same weapon that is available to you and me today. He used the Word of God. If you and I are going to defeat Satan's lies, we need to know the truth, isn't it? We need to depend on the very Word of God. And three times, what did he do? He quoted what? Scripture. We need to be committed to learn and obey God's Word. You have to know God's Word and you have to obey God's Word. Know the Scriptures. Not only know it in your head, folks, but know it in your hearts so that you are committed to live it out. When Satan challenges your loyalty to God and your confidence in, in God's love and your confidence in, in God's plan, and when Satan tempts you to presume on God's grace, the only thing that is going to anchor you is your knowledge of the Word of God and your devotion to obey it. So are you studying the Scriptures? Do you use the opportunities that are provided to you to grow in your knowledge of the Word of God? Are you coming to home groups? I mean, we don't have Friday school now, but, but why, why don't you use those opportunities to come to Friday school? To learn more of the Word of God so that you can stand against the wiles of the devil. When Satan challenges your loyalty to God and your confidence in God's love and your confidence in God's plan... The only weapon we have is the Scriptures. And when you read Ephesians 6, we see there the, the armor of God, isn't it? And you know the only weapon of attack there is the sword. Every other weapon, every other piece of that armor is, is, is protection, isn't it? The shield, the helmet, the shoes. The sword is the, the weapon. And the sword is the Word of God. That is what we have to attack. And temptation focuses on the immediate moment. And of course, not the ultimate consequences. And Jesus dealt with these temptations by focusing on the Word of God, by living a life that was grounded in the Scriptures so that He could trust God's character, so that He could trust God's plan. Even when He couldn't see the future, or even when the future doesn't make sense, we trust God's character. We trust God's timing. How will this give me pleasures now, we may ask all the time, isn't it? And that's, that's Satan's temptation right there. And his way of blinding us to God's goal by making us focus on the present, not, not the future, not the consequences. Just enjoy. It doesn't matter. Don't think about the future. Don't think about the consequences. He wants you to think about the now. And God's Word just refocuses us and, 
sets our mind on God's ultimate purpose, that He will return, folks, that He is coming back, and He hasn't just left us without any hope. He will return. And our goal while we're on this earth is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, so that when He does return, we can hear Him say those words to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Think of the goal, folks. Don't just think of the present. And when Martin Luther was asked how he overcame the temptations of the devil, he replied, this is what he said, Well, when he comes knocking at the door of my heart and asks who lives here, the dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved out. Now I live here. When Christ fills our lives, Satan has no room, folks. He has no entrance. Jesus, the conqueror of temptation, lives in each and every single Christian so that we now have this supernatural means of resisting the voice of temptation, of overcoming this accuser. Don't let Satan take away your relish, your appetite for the things of the Lord. Jesus' victory over Satan proves that he is the righteous Son of God, mighty to save all who call upon him. If we trust in him as our Savior and we walk in his strength each day, we can overcome temptation when it comes. He is indeed worthy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have overcome the devil. Thank you that your son has defeated Satan at the cross. He has defeated sin and he has defeated death. Not only just the the battle, but the war. You are victorious. And we stand confident in the blood and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are so grateful today that we serve a risen Savior, that we serve the Savior who is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that we have a hope, that we have a purpose, we have a guaranteed hope, and our faith is not in vain. Our faith is not in idols. Our faith is not in things that cannot hear us or, or, or see us or even answer us. Our faith is in the living God. We pray, Lord, please, from what we have learned that you would give us a greater appetite for spiritual things, for the things that please you, the things that please your Son, that we would walk a life that is worthy of being called Christian, that you would be honored in our lives, that you would get the glory that, that you deserve. You are worthy, Lord, but we pray that our lives would display that worthiness to the world around us, and that Christ would be magnified. Christ would be exalted. Forgive us, Lord, our sins where we have failed in the past. But thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness we can have in Christ Jesus, who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Please, Lord, may we not be 
slaves to our sin any longer. But may we love your word. May we have this appetite for your word. And may we grow in truth and knowledge and live lives that would reflect the beauty of Jesus. Please, Lord, do the work of grace amongst us. For the sake of your great name and for the joy of your people, we ask this prayer. Amen.